Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of the Overanalyst Podcast. We are so glad to have you join us today for what promises to be a rather unique look at a very unique project. My name is Brady, or the Overanalyst on Twitch and associated platforms, and I'm joined as always by my dear friends Martino, or Seth the Overwitch. Hello. And Mate, or Comrade Potato. Hi. And today, friends, we're going to be continuing our deep dive into the salacious world of Bethesda Softworks slash Game Studios. When last you heard from us, we took a fairly comprehensive look at the company's history, specifically Bethesda as a publisher, not, not just a developer, and spent far longer than I thought like we ever could just running down this massive um, roster of litigation they had engaged yeah. with, high-profile litigation, over the mm. past 20 years. Um, and we kind of presented some mild evidence to suggest that, well, maybe Bethesda the publisher, at the very least, doesn't deserve the sterling reputation that Bethesda the developer earned for it with a couple of titles and really tangential association to certain intellectual properties. Today, though, I'm going to be doing something a little different. You see, friends, I absolutely love terrible media. I adore train wreck films, records, and video games. With a passion. These things are objects of great fascination for me. And so today, I want to take you on a guided tour of Bethesda's greatest, most protracted PR failure to date, Fallout 76. The Fallout multiplayer online game, can't really call it massively multiplayer because that's not exactly what it was designed for, that launched in 2018 to really clangorous uh, disapproval, boos and jeers from the wider world, and struggled for over two years to find concrete footing amongst anything more than a niche player base. I, I'm excited. I don't know about you guys. How, how are we feeling? I am super excited. Yep. Like I remember when it was just released, how many people started uh, like hating on it so much. Like It was popular to hate it back in the day. Well, back in the day, three years ago. But um, yeah, I, I really want to see the details of what went wrong. Excellent, excellent. Now, I have to ask, have either of you played Fallout 76? Uh, nope. nope. I like my money. Um, Bethesda does too. <laughs> have, have either of you played Elder Scrolls Online? Uh, yes. yes. Okay, good. We all have then. It's a pretty good MMO, right? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. Keep that in mind. We're going to be using ESO as a continual frame of reference for today's lecture. So, with that said, class, welcome to a dissection, a post-mortem, if you will, of Fallout 76, at least its first year or so. So, what's the first thing we need to know about Fallout 76, aside from how much money it is so we can be glad that we've got that much in our wallet that's never going to leave? Um, well... It is, on paper, a massively multiplayer online game set in the Fallout universe. 
acting as a narrative prequel to the events of every other major entry in the franchise, right? So the idea is Fallout 76 takes place immediately as the first vaults open and these, like, people who had survived this nuclear Armageddon head out to explore and repopulate the world. It takes place in West Virginia, um, a region generically referred to in-game as Appalachia, which, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's accurate. West Virginia is a part of the Appalachian um, geographical and cultural region. Um, and it uh, received, relative to what I've seen for other Bethesda products post-Skyrim, uh, a ton of marketing just before release, yeah. didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Everybody knew about it. But the interesting thing is, first thing to notice, compared to other AAA releases... There was a very short window between Fallout 76's announcement and its release. It was announced to the public on May 30th, 2018, and released just a few months later in early November, November 14th to be specific. Now, Mm -hmm. you might look at that and say, well, Brady, that's almost half a year. That's true. But in the world of contemporary AAA, like, publisher-backed blockbuster titles, an advance notice of just roughly uh, or under five months. No, no, just over five months. My bad. Is uh, nothing at all, right? <laughs> yeah. Yep. So this thing was kind of cold launched, uh, despite trying to drum up a major initiative surrounding uh, PR and promotion beforehand. Yep. Now, let's take a look at an actual very rough timeline. Fallout 76 is something of a unique specimen because, as originally designed, it was not an independent, like, separate title. It was was not meant in the least to be a $60 title that you pay for separately from other Fallout games. Oh, God. Well, no. Rather, as I understand it, um, the integration of multiplayer or a multiplayer mode into um, a Fallout game was something that Bethesda executives and developers alike had kind of just been toying with a concept that had been bouncing around the studio for some time. And that there was some perfunctory um, examination of including in Fallout 4, uh, which was released in late 2015. Um, however, it was ultimately decided that 76, or the multiplayer mode rather, should be given enough attention and enough care so as to ensure like quality and be segregated into its own little its own little space as its own title. Mm-hmm. So they were thinking about hmm, multiplayer fallout, multiplayer fallout. Gonna have to do this as a standalone title. So, let's see, pre-production began much, much earlier than you might think, or at least tossing around this idea. See, Fallout 4 was released 2015, yeah? Yep. So, when do you think pre-production of that game started, given the average development cycle of a game? When did people start working on Fallout 4? Uh, Right after? Yeah. 2009. What? Yep. See, this is something not a lot of people who you know, have lives and don't watch copious amounts of game industry documentaries as I do, might not know. When we talk about pre-production, oftentimes, friends, whether we're doing uh, work in a AAA or an indie space, 
we're really talking about a team of like writers and maybe a couple artists, if you're lucky, a programmer or designer, just sitting down in a conference room for a few hours every day, like a handful of people, and just tossing ideas out there. Oh, what kind of setting should our next game have? Maybe we could incorporate this or that or what have you. So Mm -hmm. a lot of this time pre-production is literally spent just trying to brainstorm. And you don't hear about a lot of titles during pre-production. Few of them are announced during pre-production because this conceptual stage takes a very long time as the lion's share of studio staff are not going to be involved with it whatsoever. And a lot of projects don't make it out of this brainstorming stage. Now, that said, six years, a six-year incubation period is still a little bit on the long side of like modern game development. Uh, This was for Fallout 4, mind you, not 76. So, pre-production began uh, immediately following the release of Mothership Zeta, the following, or uh, sorry, the final DLC for Fallout 3, which saw players be abducted by aliens and have to fight through a ridiculous uh, sci-fi fleet. It was a wonderful little adventure, uh, just for the record, and full production on Fallout 4 did not begin until four years later, mid-2013, and would continue until mid-2015, the year of the game's release. Um, So full production on that title did not begin until the last of Skyrim's DLC, the Dragonborn expansion, was released. So we kind of see how Bethesda's working through these projects here, right? They've got objects uh, or projects in kind of preliminary development for a fairly long period of time, as evidenced by the amount of time that's gone from the announcement of, say, Starfield to us seeing or hearing anything about it. Um, And they kind of try to support one large, really expansive title at a time, like just rushing content out for it. And as soon as that's done and dusted, they move on to the next thing. That's not uncommon for game development companies, but I just wanted to give people an idea of the the timeline for development we're working with here. Um, So... Um, Fallout 4 is released in mid-2015, and as I understand it, um, production on Fallout 76, again, kind of in this pre-prod stage, began at some point during the development of Fallout 4, when they realized, hey, this multiplayer mode should probably be its own thing. Um, so that gives us, if we want to be terribly generous, probably at most around four years, or less than four years of actual production time, on Fallout 76, compared to pre-prod included something like six years for Fallout 4. That's without DLC. Can we see the problem here? Um, Maybe? Well, let, let me put it to you this way. You guys both have more experience playing MMOs than I do, right? Probably. Yeah. Is an MMO a very easy type of game to design or to support? Oh, fuck no. Would you say, on average, it's harder or more intensive a process than a, no matter how high the budget is, a single-player, like, RPG game? Yep. Definitely, yeah. Isn't it a little weird that they spent less time on the MMO total outside of the conceptual phase than they did on, like, um, Fallout 4 itself? Like, much less? Kind of, yeah. That's kind of sus. 
And is it maybe a harbinger of things to come that they decided to kind of maybe rush this or just rush headlong into it when it was their first MMO? Money, money, money. Must be fun. Mm-hmm. A big twist on MMO. Very technically, yes. Well, technically, the- because one of the M's in the MMO means massively, uh, and there are not that many people playing it. I was about to say, the other means multiplayer, and I'm not so sure they got that uh, anymore. I was just about to say, like, massively single-player online game. Wow. <laughs> massively miserable online game. So all three of us had the, the same idea, different execution. Exactly, yes. Now, here's the thing. Keep this in mind, dear friends, dear audience. Bethesda Game Studios handled development of Fallout 76 and Fallout 4. So this is the actual development arm of Bethesda. This was their first, like, multiplayer online game. Now, if you've been paying attention or you follow the company, that might sound a little strange to you, right? You might think, as I did when I started doing research for this episode, well, that's not Bethesda's first RPG. They they made Elder Scrolls Online years Uh earlier. And Uh that game... Correct me if I'm wrong, friends. It had a somewhat rough launch, though there weren't people, you know, just calling for it to be shuttered almost immediately. And through quality of life improvements and, um, like, continual patching and communication with the community, ESO has gotten to a really good place with a healthy, consistent player base. Yep. So... I was thinking, as you may be thinking, how on earth did they botch this after releasing and fine-tuning, improving another MMO across a period of years preceding the announcement of Fallout 76? Well, that's because Bethesda Game Studios did not make Elder Scrolls Online. They didn't. A sister studio under um, the Bethesda publishing arm... Zenimax Online Studios created Elder Scrolls Online. Um, And it was in production, as I understand, from 2007, technically through the present, because more and more expansions and content are being released uh, constantly for that game. Quite frequently, actually, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And we're going to keep them in mind, because I'm going to be making a couple of comparisons to the way in which they developed ESO as we Mm -hmm. try to unpack Fallout 76. All you need to know, though, is it, again, had a slightly rough launch, but um, was generally received well even at that point. People enjoyed the basic systems and gameplay loop and Mm -hmm. the deeper look at uh, the Elder Scrolls setting that the game provided and felt and especially feel now like the game provides exceptional value for what it is. So that's Mm -hmm. ZeniMax Online Studios, not Bethesda Game Studios. Bethesda Game Studios handled this flame and train wreck we're dissecting today, and that includes, at the present, just over or around 420 people working full tilt on this game for several years. Nice. As I understand it, it was just about all hands on deck during the development of Fallout 76, especially following the release of Fallout 4, right? There were people handling Mm -hmm. some DLC support and all of that. For the most part, all three studios were very deeply involved in the development process for Fallout 76. And again, 400-some-odd people 
That is not a small team, even in the the echelons of AAA development, is it? Yeah. Well, here's the thing, though. None of these people. I shouldn't say none. I I didn't look at the full cast or um the full crew roster. Most of the people involved in decision making for Fallout seventy six. I looked up like their CVs on Moby Games and all of that. They'd never made an online game before either. Wow. So you have a bunch people of experts. You have people who know that, hey, our sister studio is making an obscene amount of money for us with this other title. Let's just do it ourselves using, as we'll see, really crap technology from our last single player game. Um, so you've got three Bethesda studios in Maryland, Montreal, and Texas working on this thing for several years. Now, the most interesting of the three studios to me is the Austin, Texas branch, because that branch, God love them, have something of a short history in the the gaming space. I want to say in the late 2000s, they were... uh, What was their name? Goodness gracious. Um, Battle Cry Studios. That was their initial name. And they were developing a... I want to say a shooter or some kind of multiplayer game by the name of Battlecry. And I don't believe it ever got released due to the studio falling on uh, some financial dire straits. And thus they were bought out by Bethesda. They were acquired by Bethesda. And so this little, like, formerly pseudo-indie studio in Texas gets the unenviable task for Fallout 76 of modifying the engine used for Skyrim and Fallout 4, as well as, as we'll see, some of the source code for Fallout 4 to create the MMO infrastructure themselves. Woo! Wait, 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 wait. Some hmm? of the source code, I thought they just slapped just multiplayer on it and that's it. And, you know, Uh, the NPCs. No, you're you're not wrong. It is mostly, but not all of Fallout 4. But where we get some interesting stuff... Oh, wait till I talk about the netcode. Oh, wait. Just you wait. You're never gonna believe where the netcode came from. So, anyhow, three studios working around the clock, few years, um, doesn't end well. Just a few quick things to note uh, before we get into the, the real meat here. Fallout 76 did have some genuinely gifted people working on it in um, executive positions. Design director Emil uh, Pagliarulo um, was also the lead designer on Fallout 3 and 4 and handled quest and general design for the Elder Scrolls games, um, was a lead writer on both Fallout 3 and 4, and was a designer on Thief 2 back in the day. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Project lead Jeffrey Gardner... um, was a designer for this Strange Defender reboot back in 2002, but was also the lead designer on the licensed, um, like, beat-em-up or brawler uh, based on the 2005 Fantastic Four film for Seven Studios. And mm -hmm. let me tell you what, I don't know if you guys ever played the Fantastic Four license game, you know, for the kind of shitty, um, like, uh, live-action film from back in the day? Nope. Nope. It was, for like a four-player co-op brawler, it was actually pretty good. So this guy has some experience working in really restrictive environments and making things work. He was a lead producer on Fallout uh, 4 and the project lead 
on 76. This was, I think, his first um, game as a project lead. Um, um, one of the production, somebody just credited as production, right? But as an exec, um, Miss Marisa Leon was uh, a member of, and I think at times leader of various QA teams for Bethesda and Arcane titles, including mm-hmm. the incredible Fallout New Vegas. She handled some QA duties for that. Um, let's see, lead designer uh, Christian Cummings was a former uh, vice president and designer slash director at a company called Grey Matter Interactive, uh, the folks behind the Return to Castle Wolfenstein series. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. He also did design for American McGee's Alex, uh, a sci-fi RPG called Anachronox, and unfortunately he also handled design on Duke Nukem Forever and Die Katana. So, a mixed bag. A lot of these people, um, tech directors, programmers, um, they have been with Bethesda working on their products for like at least a decade. So you see a lot of the same names that worked on 76 held similar or slightly lesser titles in their departments um, for Fallout 4, for Skyrim, for uh, Fallout 3, many of them. So a lot of these are Bethesda long-timers who don't have much or any experience working with MMOs, but definitely know their brands and know their studio, right? So I want to state, even at the executive level, a lot of the people involved with this game, incredibly talented folks. They seem very, very pleasant in a handful of reviews or interviews I dredged up. It's just, this wasn't their specialty. Um, And they were more or less told to do it anyway. Um, quick thing as well, just to um, like remove a, a, a pallor of doubt from some of our audience. Todd Howard, the the meme man you see like on stage at E3, the the senior producer at Bethesda, he was not directly involved in well much of the studio's day to day activities. That's not what like executives at that level do. Um, he ultimately, I'm sure, approved everything, but he was not terribly directly active in development, I don't think. Um, okay, that is a quick disclaimer about in recognition of some of the staff. Now we get to the good stuff. Yay! Let's talk about, let's talk about that fucking engine. Okay, so does anybody know the name of the engine that Fallout 76 runs on? A little engine that could... The little engine that couldn't. There you go. <laughs> no. Fallout 76 runs on a proprietary technology called the Creation Engine. First, um, kind of finalized in 2011, as it was developed in-house by Bethesda, well, partially in-house, in order to um, meet certain demands for rendering, for animation, and for, uh, I believe, storytelling as well, like uh, quest um, programming and the like, or quest radiant quest programming, uh, that was uh, required for Skyrim. They were imposed oh, for Skyrim. Mm-hmm. Bethesda decided that the engine they had used for most of their products for quite some time previously, the Gamebryo engine, which also worked... Um, sorry, also was used for the following... The Epic Mickey duology, Civilization IV and Civilization Revolution, Atlas's Catherine. Um, let's see. 
and the wonderfully underrated El Shaddai Ascension of the Metatron, all big uh, budget AAA titles, um, was very, very robust and very, very popular in the early to mid-2000s. But Bethesda felt that the Gamebryo engine was just a little, a little derelict, like it mm-hmm. was obsolete and couldn't meet many of the technical demands they had for their games, which, wow. So what they did was they took the Gamebryo engine, or parts of it, I believe, and they ran what was called, and you guys can help me explain this to the audience more comprehensively because I'm not going to do so as eloquently as I would like. They ran what was called a fork off of Fallout 3's programming, or Fallout 3's um, mm-hmm. software suite. Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in like the world of tech, that means they took the engine as it was kind of utilized for and programmed for Fallout 3, and then iterated upon it in such a way that they eventually ended up Ship of Theseus style with something modified to an extent where it was effectively a distinct product. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, It has basically the same skeleton, but it's a different, different product. Yes. So they took Fallout 3, or specifically the Gamebryo engine as designed for or modified for Fallout 3, modified it extensively, again, with an eye towards animation and storytelling, which if you go back and look at Skyrim's animations and storytelling, that's actually a little sad. And they were able to create a proprietary engine, again, the creation engine, which has been used on Bethesda Game Studios products from 2011 through the present. Now, a couple interesting things to note about this engine. It is not what is running in ESO, because, again, ESO started development in 2007. Now, ESO, as I understand it, uses an engine that was largely created out of whole cloth by the folks over at ZeniMax Online Studios. They licensed a very popular engine called a Hero Engine as a base, as a template, because, according to an interview with one of the lead designers or programmers, one or the other, um, they knew that if they wanted to provide a really high-quality Elder Scrolls MMO experience, they were going to have to create a lot of systems, a lot of the UI, a lot of the like feedback players receive, and a lot of the programming, obviously, from scratch. They couldn't just take World of Warcraft, its systems, its hardware, and slap an Elder Scrolls coat of paint on it. Yeah. So what they did was they licensed this engine, the Hero Engine, which, like Gamebryo, very popular in the early 2000s, might still be kind of popular in certain circles, I believe, Um And while they were working to design the systems they would ultimately put into the game, including a lot of the elements of the engine, they used Hero Engine as a base to work off of and get some things off the ground, put some things in the oven, as it were. And they modified it extensively, or I think replaced it bit by bit with their own technology as development moved on. Now, I don't know about you. I think that's an incredibly like creative solution to the issue of not having any hardware or any software to begin with. Like, let's buy something, license something to use as a test kit, basically, while we yeah. can, while we create our own stuff. Yeah. And it worked, because I, I don't know about you guys, but by the standards of 
big budget MMOs, I would say that the suite of tools used to create or to, I suppose, run uh, Elder Scrolls Online is, even by the standards of 2021, fairly sophisticated, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So that's how they did it in 2007. Uh, Bethesda, however, when they made their own game, decided to take an engine from 2011, uh, throw it at a new studio that they had acquired out of, like, serious financial hard times that had never worked on an MMO before, and told them to somehow make it an MMO. Now, the creation engine actually posed a very significant threat to development for the following reason. So many of its systems, as created by, like, the Bethesda team, the Skyrim team specifically were contingent upon the progress and status of a single perspective character, of a singular hero and main character, right? Think about Skyrim and the way the world state in communities when it comes to player or characters interacting with you, when it comes to the types of items that'll spawn all of that, are directly related to how far along quest lines, how far along the path of like, progression through leveling and perks that you as a player have, right? Yeah. They deliberately created a lot of these player-centric systems in order to give the feeling of a reactive world that the player could have agency within and over. They called these systems internally, um, well, at least people who worked on Fallout 76 did, Atlas systems, because the player was holding the world up. And... If you're familiar with the extent to which many Bethesda games have to be modded in order to run properly on many uh, machines, that's more literal than you might think. Mm-hmm. So, the Fallout 76 team, chiefly these poor folks down at Bethesda Austin, had to find a way to not only adjust Fallout 4's code to fit an MMO framework, they had to take an engine that was specifically designed for single-player experiences with no multiplayer component, and in fact with the agency of the player determining the way a great deal of systems work, and somehow make it amicable to, like, an, uh, a shared-world MMO. I, yep. It's a tall order, right? Pretty much, yeah. Oh, but it's okay. Because our dear friends at Bethesda also needed to find some way to ensure that connectivity and the integrity of the online infrastructure, those those servers, would be maintained. They needed something, friends, called netcode. Now, uh, Tina and Mata, you guys both know what this is, obviously. Yeah. Um, could you provide an explanation for members of the audience who might not? Um, sure. Should I, or do you want to? No, no, you can go. It's just basically, you know, the code that actually handles the networking between, you know, the player, the server, other players. Yeah. Stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, the actual code that handles the multiplayer part of the multiplayer game. So this software would be tasked with maintaining the general integrity of the multiplayer experience, right? Yeah. It dictates how well and how consistently... I can connect to the main server, how well mm-hmm. I can connect to other players or their machines if necessary. And I assume it also has some role in reducing things like lag or um, yeah. other connectivity issues, right? Basically, uh, what I would say that it's 
uh, one of the main issues that it's trying to resolve is uh, find a way to make it fair because mm -hmm. due to lag, for example, what you as a player perceive as fair, what the server sees, what happened, and what your opponent sees, what happened, might be three different things. So it is up to the netcode to decide, okay, which of the three scenarios is what actually is fair. Yes. Yeah, so kind of providing and creating a middle ground that also provides a roughly equivalent experience to anybody who's connected to your servers. Mm. Right, so Bethesda needed some netcode, and now, unfortunately, they didn't have any old games that they could tear apart to, to dig some out. So, what do you think they did? They got it from somewhere else? Yeah, yeah, remember, Bethesda the development studio didn't have any netcode, but that doesn't mean Bethesda the publisher didn't. They got in contact with one of the, the studios they had acquired, and they made some mm -hmm. calls. They were like, man, we, we really need this, this netcode for this multiplayer online game we're working on. Also, we own you now, so um, sling it on over to Austin. Yeah. And that's how Fallout 76 had to run the netcode from fucking Quake. Uh, See, oh god, that explains so many things. That, that, wow. Please, please. Now, hold on. As I understand it, we're not talking Quake 2, we're not talking Quake 3, we're talking the got software to give them the netcode from, like, the first Quake. Brilliant. Like, the, I was just about to ask that, the, the very first one. Mm -hmm. I, I, I did not see anywhere across a couple different sources that it was, like, Quake 2, Quake 3, any of that, so it sounds like, yeah, the, the first Quake... Now, explain to our audience... Aside from the fact that this is online uh, connection code from a game that was, like, nearing 20 years old at that point, um, what is wrong with this picture? Um, it's uh... netcode for a freaking FPS, for a shooter, for a small, relatively small map shooter, which is, like, 20 players just shooting at each other. Right. And you're trying to make it, like, a large-scale... <laughs> MMO. Well, you know, sort of. Air quotes, MMO. <laughs> Relatively multiplayer game. Which actually uh, makes it more understandable why they decided to drop out the NPCs at launch. Yeah, they couldn't handle it. Probably. <laughs> actually, probably. <laughs> well, no, they, 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 they took out like 80% of what the content you would expect from a Fallout game, and then they couldn't run that. Yeah. <laughs> which Beautiful. is... Really incredible. Yeah, so we've got an engine that's at the time going on seven years old. We've got netcode that's going on 20 years old or over 20 years old. We've got a studio that has never made a game before trying to support this massive infrastructure. Um, oh, boy. And you know what else I found out? The folks over at ZeniMax Online Studios collectively are credited as having done additional work on Fallout 76, and what do you want to bet that they had to dive in and save this project several times? Oh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm probably. And again, were... I need to emphasize, before we get into, like, the, the biggest portion of today's um, lecture, lecture, talk, whichever, um... This is not meant to be a critique of the people working in the trenches designing the game. They, they just had their orders and had to, like those poor folks in Austin, for instance, had to work with the timeline and the tools they were given. 
They had you to know? do their best to create something something that was effectively impossible with the supplies they had. But I still have one question. So by that time, um, Elder Scrolls Online was either in the making or already launched, right? Um, let me see. I believe it was already launched by then. Yeah, so they had netcode available to them, right? Um, let me see. As of the time it was officially released, yes. ESO was released on April, 4, or April 4th, 2014. Now, one issue that may have come up is since Fallout um, 76 development began mm -hmm. near the tail end, kind of overlapping with Fallout 4's, Fallout 4 was released 2015, yeah. that in the very early stages of development, that netcode wasn't available to them. But, well, no, wait. I would think you would secure the netcode long before you release the game, Yeah, right? exactly. I mean, that is kind of like the main part of it, like a very solid part of it. So, like, so, why would they go with the netcode for a hundred million year old game instead of the game that they just released. Now I'm going to find out, like do more research and find out that somehow ESO is running the netcode from a multi-user dungeon. <laughs> oh god. Um, I don't even know if they have netcode, but... <laughs> oh well. So, yeah, this, this is not shaping out to be too promising, right? Yep. Any, uh, any feedback or questions so far, guys? Well, uh, that kind of jankiness, to be honest, does not quite surprise from Bethesda. Just, um, either of you played Fallout 3? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, loved it. Okay, so uh, you know the Broken Steel DLC? Yep. Yep. The, the, you know the story of the Metro train? Uh, no. Mm -mm. So, like, it's not actually, like, a coded train that drives you around. It's actually an NPC that has a uh, train helmet that goes around and drives the helmet. What? Um, what? Yeah, I will... Wait, let me just... Uh, let me just find the article. Um, and An I NPC with a train helmet. Yes. Is it just me, or does it seem like Bethesda, like, when they, they do in-house development, has this bizarre tendency to find the most obtuse, like, kind of complicated solutions to simple problems. Yes. To be honest, this was probably simpler than actually, like, uh, coding the train. But still, it's like, why? Why would that yeah. even be an idea? Yeah, and apparently, like, uh, some modder accidentally discovered it. Did somebody, like mistakenly somehow by some accident clipping or what have you kill the train while they were riding it uh i don't think you can because the the npc is riding under the textures it should be safe but, uh, uh in a normal game they would be oh god wait a minute with with fallout 3's melee kills though does this mean we can pull like a final fantasy 6 no clip and suplex the train Ooh. possibly oh uh, i told you wrong it's not a head it's actually the cab, the metro cab, is the NPC's right hand. Ah, <laughs> even better. Oh, well. Brilliant. Now I kind of yes. want, like, a figurine of the NPC with the train as his hand. No, 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 like, it's above him, but the hand is missing, and it's basically like, uh, it's the hand, but the textures are above. Mm. Right, it's right. just, wow. He's just wow, yeah. Yeah, that's all I can say. 
All right. Um, anything else y'all want to add before we get into the actual Fallout 76 timeline? Into the fallout of the fallout. Uh, no, wow. I'm good. Sorry. All right. Let me see if I can do this. <clears throat> One moment. Let me get my notes. How many pages of notes do I have just on the timeline for the game's first year? Three, four, five, six, seven. Seven. All right. Let's do wow. this. <clears throat> Pre-release. A $199 Power Armor Special Edition of Fallout 76 is detailed and promoted extensively by Bethesda Softworks. Uh, they offer several little goodies in addition to the base game, including a glow-in-the-dark map of the game world, a wearable and uh, rather low-quality uh, Brotherhood of Steel Power Armor helmet. Uh, sorry, not I... a Brotherhood Power Armor helmet. I thought you were gonna say a wearable train. If only. Um, several little figurines in a bag. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen those bags of, like, plastic army men you can buy at the dollar store. Um, basically that, but Fallout. A steel bookcase for the game. And uh, this isn't super important, but they, they also promised to include a pretty nice canvas duffel bag that players could use. It was like Fallout 76 brand. It looked pretty nice. Um, we'll never hear about that again. <laughs> Also pre-release, the game is confirmed following its announcement to be entirely online, but Bethesda leadership, including senior producer Todd Howard and PR czar Pete Hines, emphasize the importance of solo questing and just the proximity of other players in the final product. They absolutely assure players that they can have a fulfilling experience um, questing solo, but that interacting with other players will add a level of realism and life to the world. Um, they broadly... Hold on. By the way, could you guys uh, pick up the voice effect there? Uh, nope. No. Oh, dang it. Voice voice mod isn't working, then. Oh, that's a shame. I think I it could there. be depending on which uh, output you set into Zencaster. Probably, yeah. Oh, I set the correct one. Hold on. That's that's a shame. I I had like a retro radio thing going on. Oh. Um. Hold on, really quickly. I by God, I want to make this work. Um. Recording just audio. That's good. Yeah. No, it's the voice mod virtual audio device. It's got that. Um. <laughs> Sorry. Just one second. Um. Mm -hmm. Test. Test. Yeah, that it, should do it. It does sound a bit different though. Try saying something a bit longer. Test. One, two. Yeah. Now you hear it? Um, I kind of hear you double now. I hear you normally, and then I he hear the ro radio, like, from distance. Yeah. Oh, good. Great. Okay, so that's just broken. Never mind. I I had a whole shtick, but... All right. Well, hey, it's perfect. Perfect for this episode. It doesn't yeah. work. Who cares? Release Let's it anyways. See. No, but Brady promised us. Yeah, uh, it's okay. I'll give you 500 atoms, and if you spend another $10, then you might be able to buy a digital microphone. Let's see. Nice. So the devs also emphasize this make-your-own-fun ideology <laughs> that they were bringing to design. They seem to believe quite earnestly that one of the 
largest sources of appeal, and certainly a source of appeal for their bottom line, if you'll pardon my cynicism, was the notion of letting a bunch of players loose in a vast open world to kind of interact with one another and fulfill the roles of, you know, questing partners and explorers and traders and pirates and bandits um, in relation to one another. So that players would interact with one another, kind of create this internal economy and ecosystem and largely sustain each other, right? That Bethesda wouldn't have to really tightly curate um, quests or NPC-driven storylines or things like that. That if you just give them the world and the tools and little fun toys here and there, people will come, they'll flock to the service, and they'll really enjoy themselves, right? Now, this is not an altogether uncommon philosophy in massively multiplayer online game design. This type of sandbox without a lot of curated content, what we would call the amusement park approach, right? Something like WoW or The Secret World or um, DC Universe Online Final Fantasy XIV, where the game is constantly showing you new places you can go for new curated quest lines. There's always different things to do. And it's kind of guiding you by the hand to all of these NPCs and instances and encounters, right? Mm -hmm. This kind of hands-off approach is really popular. But according to um, a very, very knowledgeable uh, games critic and YouTuber, uh, Josh Hayes, um, his YouTube account, or, sorry, his YouTube account, I believe, is Josh, Josh Strife Hayes. He covers MMOs almost exclusively. One of the greatest failures, or perhaps risks, of this approach to design is that, well, you can't really do whatever you want in a world like this. You can still do, as he has said many, many times in editorials I, like, binged over the past couple weeks, you can do what the programmers actually insert into that world for you to do, right? So... If you give me a largely empty sandbox with a bunch of other players running around and ways to interact with them, you're not saying I can do anything. If I want to go questing, if I want to have an adventure, if I want to immerse myself in, like, the, the world of Fallout and its factions, I can't do that, right? Yeah. So, really, you're providing a bare-bones kind of restrictive experience under the guise of players being able to do whatever they want in an empty, kind of lifeless world. And this was mm. a major problem with Fallout 76. But also pre-release, things didn't look too bad. Um, marketing, for instance. Marketing opportunities were great. In addition to that 200 buck Power Armor edition, Think Geek advertises a $150 pre-order for a Fallout 76 licensed Pip-Boy construction kit. Like, you can make a little model of the Pip-Boy. Oh, cool. Um, so that's another $150 that you can spend on Fallout 76 for a grand total so far of $350, if you want mm -hmm. that merchandise. Let's see, Todd Howard uh, would come out in the weeks preceding launch or months preceding launch and criticize uh, Sony during an interview for um, a lack of cross-platform play integrating oh. PlayStation 4. Now, here's the thing. I'm trying to provide as balanced an account of this as I can. Todd Howard is not wrong. Sony is notoriously um, averse to cross-platform play and tends to um, extort much higher fees for things like that 
out of developers and out of publishers oftentimes refusing outright than Microsoft or Nintendo do. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But they knew that going into development, like it's not a new policy by, by Sony, right? That That is correct, yes. I, true, I believe if you don't say anything, they're not going to change it. I believe the interviewer was asking him specifically about crossplay, uh, and okay. he said that while there will be, and there is, crossplay between um, Xbox One and PC, there unfortunately cannot be um, PlayStation 4 yeah, yeah, uh, okay. crossplay mm-hmm. due to Sony's um, policies. Mm-hmm. So just throwing that out there, I thought it was an important bit of news. Um, let's see. Also, uh, Bethesda executives, so Todd Howard and Pete Hines, who, again, is Bethesda's senior global vice president of marketing and communications, meaning he handles promotion, largely. Right. He, he used to be a journalist and a radio personality, so working kind of in the same fields I did when, he, when uh, we were younger. Mm. Um, they were extremely vague about like the actual nature of the game leading up to its release. If you recall, there was this time when the press was well aware that Fallout 76 existed, was well aware of when it was being released, and that it was not a main entry in the Fallout series, but rather some kind of multiplayer shared world thing. But they didn't really know what kind of game it was. Like, is this an outright MMO? Is this like some kind of co-op thing? Like... Is this a survival game? What what is what is Fallout seventy six? Yeah, I mean, t- to be fair, before it launched, I was kind of under the impression that it's like an add on for Fallout uh, four, that just yes. adds multiplayer. Lots of people were. Lots of people were. Um, so the the multiplayer aspect was emphasized continuously in these kind of vague interviews that were given, but there wasn't a lot of detail about kind of like No Man's Sky, exactly what you could do in the world, exactly how you could interact with other players, mm-hmm. what the systems were, right? Yeah. They, they were saying, oh, you could you could do this, you could be like a raider, you could start your little community and all that. And it's like, okay, when I'm in the game, what systems do I use? How do I interact with the game software to make that happen? Yeah, yeah. Um, they were vague about a lot of things for quite some time. This was an object of consternation for many. Um, Now, they do explain it, however, I think Todd Howard did, that multiplayer was not the studio's major focus for the immediate future, like uh, not in regards to Fallout 76, but rather Mm -hmm. to quiet some alarm, they said, well, no, we're not going to be making a shift to multiplayer-based or multiplayer-centric games. Um, Fallout 76 is its own unique project we've been wanting to work on for a long time, and our focus is going, as a studio, as a company, is going to continue to be these um, high-quality single-player open-world RPGs. Okay. Our first specific date here, June 30th, 2018. Now, lots of people were quite cross with the idea of a multiplayer Fallout game in general, right? Lots of people would prefer to have seen more news regarding Starfield or a hard announcement for Elder Scrolls Six or something more substantial out of Bethesda. And it's important to note, I think, that this is not the dev team's fault. This is not the company's fault. Um, when you take a beloved single-player franchise and like take it in a multiplayer direction for a single title, well, not everything is for everyone. 
And you're going to have people who disagree with that um, creative choice, uh, mm -hmm. many of them quite vociferously. I, for instance, don't like the idea of a multiplayer Fallout because I don't play yeah. a lot of multiplayer games. Yeah. Uh, but I think it could be done well, right? I think there's yeah, a market exactly. for it. Um, Some people are going to enjoy it. But on June 30th, 2018, a satirical Fallout New Vegas mod titled the Fallout 76 Experience was released onto Nexus Mods by a user called uh, Funky Swaddling, I believe. <laughs> nice. It's a small, again, largely comedic um, mod that adds several hostile uh, NPCs to the game with the names and mannerisms of, like, uh, MMO griefer archetypes, mm -hmm. So, and, along with sound clips. So as I understand it, a lot of it's very, very, very vulgar, but, like, you'll be randomly attacked by these uh, players with, you know, stupid um, gamer tag names or things yeah. like that uh, while you're roaming around the, uh, the world. And they'll be, like, screaming and shrieking into fuzzy, distorted mics and things like that. So mm -hmm. it, was, it was a parody of the very concept of Fallout 76. And at the time of recording, that short little mod... It's actually doing quite well for itself over on the Nexus. It received better than the uh, game itself. Yeah, it received two hundred and fifty-two user endorsements as of uh, June fourth. Hmm. Let's see. Um, Bethesda also partnered with the UFC to promote Fallout seventy-six in Australia and New Zealand. Um, an initiative headed by um, professional fighter, like I want to say, a champion at one time. And brand ambassador Robert Whitaker, who is also a Twitch streamer in his downtime. So um, Bethesda's really investing in the marketing, right? As you can tell, mm -hmm. leading up to release. We've got the $200 um, special edition. We've got the $150 license merchandise. We've got a professional like sports combat league promoting it in one yeah. territory. Oh, but if you've not spent enough money on Fallout 76 before its release... Don't you worry. On October 23rd, 2018, Fallout, the Vault Dweller's official cookbook, was uh, officially <laughs> released by graphic designer and Pixelated Provisions blog author Victoria Rosenthal. Now, for what it's worth, I'm going to say Miss Rosenthal seems to be an absolutely delightful human being with um, a really, really talented eye for cuisine. Like, on her blog, she posts recipes either directly from or inspired by the game she's playing through. Yeah. And a lot of them, like some of the Japanese sweets from Judgment, for instance, look amazing and are made with high-quality ingredients. So she I knows mean, her stuff. Yeah, uh, it does sound like an amazing idea, to be honest, but like a cookbook inspired by Fallout. Um... Right, right! Why is there an official cookbook for a series where, like, food is irradiated, burnt, and causes you physical pain when you consume it? Oh, but God. come on, don't tell me you didn't want to try toilet bowl soup. Come on. Aww. Yes. I, I, mm -hmm. I've eaten at a Cracker Barrel before, thank you. <laughs> Let's see. So, no, so they released this licensed cookbook uh, with Miss Rosenthal. Uh, for the record, she's also released um, official cookbooks based on Street Fighter, which mm -hmm. makes sense. It's like street food from each of the countries represented in the game, right? That's yeah. that's kind of cool. Cute, yeah. And inexplicably an official Destiny cookbook? Oh, yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. Space food. 
Right. No. Well, if it's anything like Destiny, there's going to be a lot of it, but it's going to be completely bereft of flavor or nutrition. Yep. Um, but I, I, I will say, as silly as the cookbook is, and as silly is that there's so much Fallout 76-related merchandise just being yeah. spammed onto the market, I actually have a great deal of respect for Victoria Rosenthal after looking through her portfolio. Like, mm-hmm. as a graphic designer, I'm fairly certain she's done work for NASA, or still does. Yeah. Um and is very, very involved in sharing these free recipes through her blog, Pixelated Provisions. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to talk about this at the end of our little our little sojourn into Fallout 76 land here. But the community and fan creators have made Bethesda properties what they are so much more than the company itself yeah. has. And so, as silly as we think the idea is, I heavily encourage anyone who might be interested in like kind of novelty video game cuisine or just some really well done recipes to go check um miss rosenthal's work out over at pixelated provisions um you can Mm. find everything on her blog there and again all of it's totally free um let's see oh wait no sorry um the cookbook for what it was worth was well received but some users criticized the recipes for being quote too fancy yes really Okay, then. It's what happens when you try to sell um, cuisine to the gamers, TM, right? Yeah. Let's see. Also pre-release, Fallout 76 had a beta confirmed. Uh, I believe the first of its kind that Bethesda has ever run, obviously. Um, They even joked about with their terrible reputation for the integrity and constitution of their products um, (laughs) by claiming consistently that beta was actually... Uh, an abbreviated form of the Break It Early Test application. Oh, gra- God. It's okay. Like, they, they also... It. Yeah, they, they made sure you got your bang for your buck, too. You could break it early and break it on time. You didn't have to pick one or the other. Yeah. Um, so, let's see. The game was also confirmed to require Bethesda's proprietary launcher. So, not the Epic or Steam interfaces. You had to get a Bethesda.net mm-hmm. or .com account. Um, I think it's Bethesda.net. Log in and use their storefront, use their clients to download Fallout 76 and run the beta. Yeah. Um, let me see. The beta was confirmed to include the full game, so everything they had at launch, and uh, to retain players' progress from the beta sessions into the main game if they wish to keep playing that character. That sounds like a minor thing, but as far as quality of life goes for open betas and things like this, or semi-open betas, as we'll see, that's actually a very good thing. Uh, so disagree. Oh? I don't really believe like betas should like uh, go over into full release. Because there's so many exploits and stuff that you can do. That would give you an advantage later on. Mm. And, you know, mm, it's I just see. like everybody should start uh, from zero. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so maybe give those players who participated in the beta like some cosmetic items or something. Yeah, that, yeah, something. No, definitely, yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Good eye. Good eye. Um, oh, yeah, they also discussed plans to like deal with, with griefers or hostile players, right? Um, According to Howard, uh, he wanted to make, quote, assholes part of the content. Um, <laughs> because if players um, killed one another, if they um, uh, were, like, really active in harassing or attacking others, they would have a bounty placed on their head. 
and be visible to players around them as like marked and they could then be hunted down and all of this, which it's like, okay, people in comment sections pointed out, I see what they're trying to do. They're trying to integrate this into this, oh, other players are the content model, which is, if you've ever played an MMO, very, very, very yeah. idealistic um, approach to one's community. Um, but what they're really doing, some people said in some very well thought out lengthy comments, is incentivizing this kind of behavior, like player on player, like violence out in the open world, right? Uh, by making it a part of the game systems. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's okay to be an asshole because it's part of the game. Right, exactly. Uh, according to Todd Howard, it literally was. Let's see. On October 23rd, 2018, the Xbox One beta was launched. And on October 30th, 2018, just a week later, betas for PS4 and PC were launched. Now, the curious thing about this is that, like, you would expect usually one beta launch date for PC and one date for console, right? Yeah. Or maybe yeah. two separate ones for the consoles. Why PlayStation 4 and PC together with Xbox One getting a week all to itself? Mm, yeah. Um, let's see. Also, prior to release, um, Pete Hines details the game's microtransactions. Woo! Woo! They would revolve around a currency called Atoms, and Mr. Hines insisted, insisted vociferously in scores of interviews before and after release that they would be used exclusively to purchase cosmetic items for players and the little camps that they could construct. Mm -hmm. There would never be any gameplay value or impact to anything you could buy in the, quote, Adam store. Lust words. Keep that in mind. Yep. Um, and he also assured players that Adams would be quite easily earned through, like, rote questing, that you could rack them up in-game as long as you, you play regularly, that it yeah, wasn't yeah. too hard to accrue atoms and as far as i can tell that's kind of sort of true but not to the extent that he would want us to believe i mean um, people haven't played the game that much to know actually let's see pre-release how about some more money um Woo! bethesda announced a partnership with the west virginia tourism office and received support not only from them but from then west virginian governor jim justice in a cross-promotion campaign based around um the game's appalachian setting West so, Virginia, Mountain Mama. I I thought very very heavily about like opening this episode with a cover of Country Roads, but I'm <laughs> not with that. But no, so like they partner with the state, they're going to do pro cross promotion, and they did online. There was um quite a lot of Fallout seventy six imagery on and around the West Virginia Tourism Authority or Tourism Office website. Just think about that for a minute. Um, and if you, real quick, guys, um, have you spent enough money on Fallout 76 before launch? I have not spent a dime. No, 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 like, like, sorry, I'm, I'm speaking hypothetically. We, we've got, like, roughly $350 from the Power Armor Edition, which we have to have because of all those goodies in that bag. Yeah, yeah And then, uh, over $100 for our Pip-Boy model. Have, have we really spent enough, though? Nah. That's right. No, what we need is a special Platinum Edition strategy guide from Prima Games priced around $115. A strategy guide? Yeah. For MMO? Yeah. You know, uh, MMO strategy guides. Notoriously outdated like a week after launch. 
Now, hold on, though. There was one little confusing bit of info that squeaked out of Bethesda before the, the game was released. Factions, like the Enclave, the villainous but also kind of narratively complex remnants of the United States government, were confirmed to be present in the game, even though at this point they had publicly announced that NPCs, that is to say human NPCs, non-player characters with whom you could interact in a non-violent manner, would not be present in the game to any capacity. So mm-hmm. factions would be around, their lore would be around, and of course those sweet, sweet cosmetics affiliated with them would be, but you couldn't interact with them or the representatives, for the most part, in any appreciable way. Um, oh, well. That would continue to be the lack of NPCs and, like, actual interactivity in the narr- with the in- sorry, baked into the narrative surrounding quests would be Guys, I might want to say, short of technical issues, the biggest complaint raised against Fallout 76 <laughs> yes. for years. Yeah. Yeah. So Just the being empty. Right. Right. Exactly. It's a big empty sandbox with nothing to do. So, that brings us to the actual beta, the break it early test application. And hot damn did they break it early. And they, bro- they broke it often. Break early, mm-hmm. break often. So... Uh, The login process for people who bought the game online was very, very simple. You needed to pre-order Fallout 76 in order to access the beta. This is weird, but not entirely unheard of, right? Yeah, like it's not that uncommon. That's actually pretty common nowadays. Well, I'm thinking like like for MMOs, a a lot of times maybe you you put down like a very, very light pre-order payment or something like that. I I mean, I I pre-ordered the Guild Wars 2 Mm -hmm. um, and only with the pre-order you were able to get the like the beta or if you were lucky uh, with like random keys that they would send out. Oh, okay. Okay, I got you. Blizzard does like um, sometimes... They'll do, like, random invites and, you know, streamers guaranteed and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. And then if you, like, pre-order, you get a guaranteed uh, beta access at one point, which could be, yeah. like, the last week. Usually I got the you. last week, yeah. yeah. Okay, so this isn't abnormal at all. All right, that's yeah. fine. So login or accessing the beta for people who ordered digitally was fairly painless, right? Even yeah. though you had to use Bethesda's client. But for customers who pre-ordered physical versions at their local retailers, the process was considerably more involved as they had to find a code that had been printed somewhere on their receipt, their physical receipt, and enter it into Bethesda's online client. Mm. And this caused an issue for some people. Okay. October 23rd, 2018. The game still isn't out yet, and we're on page three in notes. Um... (laughs) Bethesda preempts the first beta session. This would have been the beta sessions for Xbox One, right? Mm-hmm. By publishing an open letter on social media that in addition to thanking fans and ruminating about like what the project meant to them, uh, also explaining away, attempting to explain and prepare them for a great likelihood of considerable bugs overall shakiness of the build and like its software or its um, infrastructure and reflecting on the entire development process as a whole. This is not a good way to start your beta by saying, guys, we know it's it's going to be bad. Yeah. Now, according to this letter, apparent questions in Bethesda's mind during development 
of a very costly video game, mind you. Something that cost God knows how much money, God knows how many personnel hours, included the following. Will people want this from a Fallout game? You might want to ask people before you start doing that. Yeah. Um, would people want this from us? No. And mm -mm. how do we make this? And the final question, what is this? <laughs> so, I get what they're going for, right? They're trying to yeah. say, oh, so many things were racing through our head. But reading that and taking it at face value, they're saying they set out, or probably their executives set out, on this mission to create a massively multiplayer Fallout game without any certainty or even inclination as to whether or not people would like it. Or just, Bethesda yeah. game studios could do it. Or even what they would put in the game beyond the online format. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like in any software, usually the first step is asking the market, is there a place for this? Yeah, is there an audience for this? Yeah. And if so, what does that audience want from a product like this? They, they seem to have been working backwards then, right? Yeah, kind of. Starting with a product, like the idea of the, the vague definition of a product, and designing it backwards, which sounds like Bethesda, all right? Yeah. Let's see. Um, Destructoids takeaways, uh, the, the website Destructoids, editors' takeaways from the beta uh, seems to include that there are issues with griefing and a very weak narrative structure. Uh, the, the bounty system apparently was kind of bugged because uh, a player, one of the players for them, uh, killed a player who had been attacking them for quite some time and was immediately um, imposed uh, upon by a bounty yeah. that had four other players gunned them down with no repercussions. Mm -hmm. um, ba -ba -ba. But the general performance on Xbox was not considerably worse than any other Bethesda title, which is to say it was... Fine for a beta. It was fine, yes. In in their experience. Uh, and actually just exploring with friends was kind of fun. Let's see. Uh, the beta specs for PCs were roughly equivalent to those for 2015's Fallout 4. Likely because Fallout 76 effectively was Fallout 4. Yeah. Um, October 30th, 2018 was the first day of PC and PS4 beta... And Jesus Christ. So, it was rocked by the discovery of a little bug that hampered the PC beta. Friends, what do you think this bug might have done? Uh, crashed the game? Better. Get all your saves? Or Get this. Uh, burnt Problems. your PC? Killed your family? If you clicked anywhere on Bethesda's launcher, like the Fallout 76 client, on PC day one of that beta the game would automatically uninstall all 50-plus gigs of itself, and you'd have to install oh. it all over again. Yeah, I just remembered it. Oh, the God. entire game! Just why? Like, like you click the play icon, and your PC's like, man, I can't let you do that to yourself. Nah, no, so sorry, I, I care about you. <laughs> so the game gross. uninstalls itself when people attempt to access it day one of this beta. That's not looking good. Mm -mm. Um... And again, that's a massive game, 50-plus gigs, um, just the beta alone. Uh, now, to their credit, Bethesda did announce uh, a fix as soon as they could. 
and they announced lots of additional beta sessions on all platforms and started handing out free codes, as you mentioned earlier, to some players in the community, uh, or no, to uh, players who had the beta so that they could share the game with their friends for free, uh, or the beta anyway, in the weeks leading up to release. That's all perfectly good uh, QA practice, I think. Yeah, I that bit. Okay, let's schedule more beta sessions, let's get more people playing, let's get people networking around the game. That's all surprisingly smart. Okay. Now, at November 8th, or on November 8th, 2018, at a promotional event, superstar streamer Ninja, the rapper Logic, and cartoon characters Rick and Morty broadcast Fallout 76 together. I... Uh, what? I, I, I have no idea why this was done. I have no idea how much this cost. The answer is too much. Yes. I mean, considering how much uh, money people were spending on their pre-order materials. Um... It's like, okay, I get Ninja, right? He's like, yeah. I think he's still the biggest name in streaming. No, I'm not sure if he's still the biggest one, but one of the biggest ones. Yeah, definitely. like top five for sure. Easily one of the biggest like solo streamers. Like, Yeah. Uh, Logic is a kind of popular, or no, a, a popular American rapper. Not entirely sure why you get him in on that. And mm, then yeah. Rick and Morty, like, why? why? Um, I get it. They were all popular at the time. Really, really popular. But it's like, maybe if you want a promotional event that speaks to people, that speaks to potential players, you have the streamer or you have, like, the, the kind of pseudo-pro players run through it themselves and give you their impressions without a lot of a lot of noise, you know what I mean? Although I'm pretty sure based on the clips I saw, Rick and Morty were far and away the most entertaining part of that commentary panel. Most likely. Um, so that that was weird. Um, also in early November, uh, the beta itself receives a 30 gigabyte patch. Uh, in addition to the 50 plus gigs of the base beta. That's, that's good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and players start pointing out a lot of tech issues at this point. Um, really frequent crashes, um, kind of impeded direct progress due to a lot of tech issues. Um, and it, it seemed like Fallout or Bethesda was developing a product that didn't work as a Fallout game and didn't really work as an MMO. According, again, to a Destructoid editor who played the beta at length, it kind of felt like they were developing a product with no audience. That yeah. it wasn't intended to be for anybody. There were just a bunch of ideas. Yeah, like, like a proof of concept. Yeah, with the concept being, please, money. Okay, so on November 14th, 2018, the game launches with another massive 54 gigabyte patch for PS4 causing its size on that console to balloon up to 99 gigabytes, at least. 99. That's, for a, a PS4 title, uh, Potato could back me up on this one, that is massive. Yes, but also there's a lot of games that uh, go over that now. That's yeah, true. Now. Around that. Those games also, however, have way more content than Fallout 76 did in launch. Bugs. Correct. Like, I, I want to say Fallout 4... Fallout 4 was, what, Mate, like, somewhere between 40 and 50 gigs at launch? Uh, I think so. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so now you have double the Fallout 4. <laughs> oh, boy. And uh, well, let's wait. see. 
double the Fallout 40 it somehow had. Oh, wait, sorry, did I say November 14th, 2018 the game launches? Yeah. It was supposed to, but November 13th, 2018. Game launches early due to a bug with the launcher. <laughs> so it just went live a few hours earlier. <laughs> Oopsie. <laughs> Frame drops are noted in the uh, game at launch, of course. Along with uh, uh, the interface, the, the Fallout-style interface, by which I mean the Fallout 4 interface... Uh, being noted as really difficult to manage in an always active online game without, like, a real pause function, you know? Yeah. Um, it's kind of that Atlas problem coming to the fore, right? So yeah. many of the things the creation engine was built for assumed a single-player experience where the player could pick it up, put it down, and pause the game if necessary, and a lot of these systems just didn't have that. Um that also includes the VAT system being made really difficult to work with, apparently. Yeah. Because you couldn't, like, slow down or stop time anymore. Yeah, I mean, what is VAT in, in an MMO, to be honest? There were also a number of survival and crafting systems implemented into the game, and these apparently could be quite uh, demanding. Uh, apparently, the game's survival elements were surprisingly difficult to deal with. And uh, crafting in particular, or just hoarding items, breaking items down, storing components of items, because you need those items to craft other items, was just an onerous chore for a lot of people. In part yeah. due to a fairly restrictive stash space, where players could, like, stow materials they didn't need at the moment, right? Um, let's see. Um, what else do we have here? Oh, yeah, um... Those were the detoid uh, impressions I just mentioned. Never mind. Mm -hmm. um, also, players noted uh, a lot of time-restricted resets for integral quest objectives, such mm -hmm. as um, certain enemies needing to be killed in order to complete quest objectives. And, well, if half the players in a given area have to kill that uh, enemy to progress, you probably want to find a way, be it through instancing or a really quick respawn, that you can get that enemy present uh, for each player to kill without a significant delay between the enemy being killed and then respawning, right? Or being yeah. present in some other form. Fallout 76 did not do this. And so there were, especially at launch when the servers were quite busy, uh, too busy as we'll find out, a lot of quest objectives with these uh, kind of cooldowns, if you will, these soft cooldowns that infuriated players because they would effectively have to queue up to kill the same enemy or pick up the same object over and over and over again and sometimes have to wait in line, essentially, for a long, long time. Uh, this is something a lot of MMOs have gotten much better at, yeah, than, like, say, the old days of WoW, where this was common. But this is like an MMO problem in the early 2000s, right? Let me see. On November 16th, 2018, so two days after launch... Citing technical concerns, Bethesda promises to expand the um, stash slot capacity in uh, for each player. Again, they were afraid of making it much larger because of how it might impact the game's integrity. That's hilarious. Um, they're going to uh, expand the stash slot because the, the base stash slot uh, capacity of 400 items, or maybe 400 slots, was deemed insufficient uh, ever since the beta. People have been complaining about it for a good long while. Um, Let's see, there was, uh, I want to say, another huge patch announced, or, no, 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 uh, they were afraid it would compromise the integrity, we mentioned that. 
Uh, three days after that, November 19th, 2018, a massive patch is released. Approximately 15 gigabytes on PC and between 47 and 48 gigabytes on console. So that's well over 100 gigs you've got on the PS4 now, right? Uh, failing to address the stash capacity, but fixing various other small bugs with quests and drops, things like that. Um, now, it's not mentioned here in my timeline because I couldn't find exact dates for it, but keep in mind most of these early major Fallout 76 patches were noted as causing many other tech and integrity issues than they, or just as many, if not more, than they fixed because, well, when Bethesda fixed one thing in the game, 12 others would break and they wouldn't realize it. Um, so this, this was constantly just a house on fire. Uh, excuse me. Goodness. Um, let me see. So that's the major, major patch. At some point in November, I'm uncertain as to when, uh, players discovered that simultaneous deployment of the game's nuclear missiles, which could be used to temporarily create areas where players could encounter high-end enemies, including transformed bats that were really just reskinned dragons from Skyrim with the same exact code, um, in exchange for high-level items, um, the players found that simultaneous deployment of two or three nukes in the same general area would cause the server to crash. <laughs> Great. The server they were playing on to crash. <laughs> Which, I have no idea how that works, but alright. Um, December 11th, we made it out of November now, December 11th, 2018. A major patch was planned and detailed that will expand the slash, stash slot capacity at last, by 50%, so up to 600 slots, or what have you. Um, yeah. And pending future expansion. Bethesda actually did something relatively smart here, saying we want to increase this gradually so that it doesn't become too much for our already burgeoning infrastructure to, to handle. Um, so, what we have here is that same patch uh, did a whole lot of balancing. A lot, a lot of balancing. For instance... There were certain cryogenic effects, like freeze effects, that players could apply to enemies or each other with weapons. You know, it, like, slows you down and acts like a standard status effect, right? The, uh, the duration of these status effects was reduced to 30 seconds. Would you care to guess as to how long the initial duration of those status effects were? Too long? Two hours! Oh, God. What? Yeah, two-hour status effect uh, from cryo weapons. That's horrible. Yeah, yeah, a lot of this is horrible. That's to um, cry for. But um, do you know, is it two hours in-game, or is it just no. two hours? Two hours. Oh, so you could just get the effect, log off, come back in two hours, you'll be fine. Yes. Slightly better, still horrible. <laughs> uh, well, no, I... I think that's how it worked. I mean, it. I, I don't think it carried over uh, between logouts. Um, let's see. Uh, the patch also planned to fix a ton of bugs um, and implement several quality of life and camera features for PC. Oh, and I'll finally add in a much-desired feature um, for the PC community, uh, push-to-talk voice chat. Like, what almost a month before? after launch. Uh, let's see, they were also going to add new, uh, camp and respec features. The patch was sized at around, um, 36 megabytes on PC and 3 gigabytes on console. Now, 
that patch would kind of be notorious for reasons we're about to get into. Uh, what Bethesda did not tell players is, well, many of the actual gameplay changes it would introduce. Now, back on November 28th, 2018, something goes down. We're talking about Baggate. Doom, doom, See, doom. Remember that $200 Power Armor edition we spent on our, like, or we shelled out for on our, like, $500 Fallout 76 shopping spree that we now deeply regret? Uh-huh. Well, several of the items weren't of the highest quality. Apparently, the Power Armor helmet is fine and cute, but it's also much cheaper than you would expect, cheaper looking and feeling. Uh, but that bag, that sweet canvas tote bag, it's not there. It's not in our $200 Power Armor Uh-oh. edition. Uh-oh. Instead... Bethesda sends along a cheap nylon bag. You know, something just a step removed from plastic, more or less. You know, considering it's Bethesda, I was actually thinking it might have been a tote bag with a hole at the bottom, like a big one. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I had to take a drink there. So on November 28th, 2018, Bethesda reacts to this outpouring of rage that comes from, well, fans who felt as though they had shelled out a great deal of money for a special collector's edition of a product they had placed good faith in and not received items of even roughly equivalent quality to what was promoted to them, right? And that that is a completely legitimate reaction. People should have been angry about that. I would have been quite cross about it. Because yep. you promised me, didn't just like tell me, hey, we'll give you some cool stuff. You promised me very specific items and provided several that were of notably inferior quality to those which you promised me and pitched to me as being worth $200, having that value. So Bethesda responds on November 28th um, very poorly. Um, so people are pissed off about the armor edi- power armor edition, uh, especially as many of those inferior bags and their um, corresponding special editions arrived up to an hour, or sorry, a week late of launch. Those ordered from Bethesda were like a week late. Um, and that nylon bag, people very, very unhappy about it. Bethesda eventually uh, apologizes after kind of deferring and just saying, uh, no, we won't be issuing refunds or anything like that in response to um, customer queries, uh, saying that there was a, uh, a nylon, or sorry, a canvas shortage. There was a shortage of material. They just couldn't make canvas bags. A shortage uh, of canvas. In the world, yes. Nice. They could not make the bags. So they sent the nylon bags. They apologized for the inferior quality. And as something of... Uh, uh, recompense for for what they've done as a form of payment they offer players 500 free atoms for the game's microtransaction store now you know the interesting thing about 500 atoms that they're really using as free chips to get you to play their little casino 500 atoms is not enough to buy a digital version of the same bag that they cheated you out of for your avatar nice Makes sense. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And it came out after Baggate went like viral on social media that there was a significant Fallout 76 uh, press release or press event. You know, the kind that they invite journalists and social media influencers to. Um, and guess what 
uh, many of the attendees at those events received. A canvas bag. Canvas bag. A totally free canvas bag. They didn't even have to pay $200 for it. And these were produced, obviously, well before the actual nylon bags, before those power armor editions were put together. So it's quite clear, obviously, that Bethesda or their executives were just lying to the public and probably trying to cut costs however they could on these special editions, hoping people maybe wouldn't notice is a bit much to, to say, but rather that they wouldn't complain. Too much. That, that it'd be like, oh, it's not really worth creating a customer support ticket or anything like that, you know? So, yeah, people are furious because Bethesda didn't just kind of uh, make a mistake here like they do with a lot of the tech issues that Fallout 76 was um, facing. They lied to the public about a very, very high-value product and uh, duped a lot of people out of a lot of money. And that's absolutely reprehensible. So, let's see. Um, what else? December 3rd, 2018. Okay, they finalized plans to produce, quote, replacement canvas bags for the Power Armor Edition. They caved to the pressure. They're like, okay, we we clearly acted uh, in error here. We're going to get you your bag. So what they do, right, is they uh, allow customers until around January 31st, 2019, so a couple months, to create a support ticket at Bethesda.net or what have you, explaining and, like, proving their purchase of the Power Armor Edition and stating that they would like a canvas bag, the actual bag that they were promised. So as long as you create that ticket online in the next couple of months, Bethesda will take care of you, right? Okay. The next day, December 4th, 2018. December is like a greatest hits of Fallout 76 Nightmares, for the record. That second major patch arrives. But, with many unannounced, significant balancing changes, seemingly intended to impair player progress and introduce more of a leveling grind to the game. Um, loot drops far more scarcely from many enemies, um, and with lesser grades. Um, I want to say EXP gains and things like that are um, cranked down slightly. So players who had already been enjoying the experience, despite its foibles, found a uh, a much grindier game foisted upon them at uh, or on December fourth, without Bethesda ever telling them publicly in like the patch notes that they would do that. Many of the changes made, friends, were not in the patch notes. They weren't published, but players working together and comparing recordings and the like were able to determine that many aspects of the game's balancing had been severely and often deleteriously affected. Can you believe that? Yes, actually. Actually, yeah. Sounds like Bethesda, right? But the lack of transparency also really, really rubbed people the wrong way. So, December 5th, 2018. <laughs> the next day. Well, Bethesda had been taking those tickets for all of a few days, right? For the replacement bags? Mm-hmm. And immediately, almost immediately, uh, there was a customer service uh, security issue where there was a massive data leak regarding the bag gate tickets because every time um, concerned players would submit an online ticket, 
they would be sent to a page where in addition to seeing their order, like their ticket confirmed, they would also see the tickets and personal information, including names and addresses or contact info or what have you, of everybody else who had submitted a customer support ticket. Oh, wow. I actually remember that. This is a company now running an MMO. (laughs) Uh, Bethesda obviously was not expecting this, uh, and there was a fairly terse boilerplate response from Bethesda stating that, oh, we've, we've identified and fixed the problem. Don't worry. So the next day... December 6, 2018, Bethesda releases the full notes to the patch released December 4th and promises to be more thorough um, when describing its patches and their contents in future in the interest of quote-unquote transparency, right? But notice this is like the second time in a month they've been caught more or less outright lying to their players about what they were giving them uh, and not seemingly concerned with it. So... A few more days pass. December, I want to say that's either 11th or 16th, 2018. I have the best handwriting. Another patch was planned, packing a plethora of presentation performance uh, enhancements. Also, um, saw even more grind-inducing balance changes, but publicly announced this time. The integrity of the game, however, especially on console, I want to say, still remained an issue. The size of that patch was 3 gigabytes on PC and around 5 on console. This game is getting massive. Um, Also as a part of that patch, there was a popular quest called Feed the People that upon completion, it was like one of those world quests that anybody could participate in, right? Like a dynamic open world event. Anybody who participated would get a free can of beef stew in-game. Fantastic. But here's the thing. You weren't intended to. Or sorry, no, sorry. On completion, as it was by the beginning, the Feed the People quest on completion would give everybody on the server a free can of beef stew, which is really nice. Um, This was patched, however, because it wasn't Bethesda's intended... um, solution to the quest to allow only those who participated to get the free can of beef stew. People were upset about this in part because nobody really thought it was a bug, not because they were getting something positive or beneficial to themselves, but because it made sense. The quest was titled Feed the People, and if enough players work together and complete it every day or every so often, right, then everybody on that server gets a reward. That makes sense. And Bethesda was quick to address that while they had also let many other technical and performance issues uh, kind of languish on the side uh, at that point for around a month. So Bethesda isn't fixing what people are finding unpleasant about the game, but they are going out of their way, just as Bioware did with Anthem, to patch out any exploits, quote-unquote, that could be used to make the game more enjoyable or less of a grind, right? Beautiful. Let's see. December 18th, my birthday... Um, the canvas bag replacements for Bag Gate begin production, um, or should begin production, uh, but Bethesda anticipated a four to six month delay before they would be in players' hands. Well, due to the canvas shortage. Of course, right. <laughs> um, but as an apology for this additional delay, they give players an additional 500 atoms that they could use in that microtransaction store, which just happens to get them up, provided you save the first 500, to the point where you can buy that bag in-game. And everything was right in the world. 
Okay, January 2nd, 2019. Fallout 76 was temporarily taken offline to address an issue that uh, became apparent on January 1st that rendered the nuclear silos in-game completely inaccessible due to the codes that you would recover from enemies just not working. No. Lots of people in comment sections were joking, saying, please, God, with the way Bethesda works, tell me this is some kind of Y2K issue where, as the new year rolls around, just none of their tech is working. Um, and but no, work? just oh, okay. something else about the in-game content didn't work. It's been out for like a month and a half, and they're still having to release major patches like every week. Speaking of, on the... 10th of January 2019, there was yet another major balance and tuning patch released, uh, primarily targeting um, rampant duping of items, which is a common exploit in MMOs, right? Mm. Uh, let me see. That patch was about 500 megabytes on PC, 4 gigabytes on console. Then January 11th, 2019, players discover... I couldn't believe this. Players discover a dev room in the game. Oh, yeah, with every single item spawned. Inside. Every single item in the game spawned in a physical dev room, along with a human NPC. They were there under our noses the whole time. By which I mean they were probably from Fallout 76, or Fallout 4. Now, wow. here's the thing. Fallout 76 at this point has developed a reputation for being fraught with technical issues, developer dishonesty, and a general sense of, well, just being an unpleasant game in addition to being a subpar MMO. Not worth the price of admission, right? Mm. But Bethesda decided to react to any player's um, discovering exploits, making use of exploits in their extremely poorly optimized game quite aggressively. They were handing out bans and probations left, right, and center, including oftentimes on people who inadvertently discovered exploits because of the game's terrible coding and programming. You know, people who would, say, glitch through the floor to a locked area and find themselves banned because yeah. they weren't supposed to be there and they must have used an exploit. Um, people who were playing and engaging with the game largely or entirely in good faith found their accounts sanctioned because they... Uh, we're just trying to play the game and running into bugs. Now, there were people, lots of people at this time, too, I have to point out, who were hacking and exploiting the game. But that doesn't make it right to uh, approach your dwindling player base with such hostility as Bethesda did. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yep. There was a player, quite famously, who was banned for apparently accumulating far too many items in too little time. When, as it happened... They were apparently exonerated after the fact, and uh, it was proven that, well, they just, uh, they really liked Fallout 76, played it a lot, and collected a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so Bethesda's taking one of the few very sincere fans of their game and punishing them, saying, there's no way you play this that much. We wouldn't play this that much. Right. And this was a big issue for the game for the months following its release. Bethesda trying to combat their own terrible um, design and hackers simultaneously and hurting a lot of good faith players in the process and not always taking steps after it's been the truth has been revealed to them to make things right. Let me see. We're we're getting there, friends. I'm I'm sorry. I know this is a long one, but there's a lot to Fallout 76. 
January 17th, uh, 2019, Bethesda drops the rhetorical hammer on exploit users in a press release. Uh, also kind of, again, a lot of these actions hurt innocent bystanders. And they also celebrate, in that press release, more than 150 bugs fixed in a week. Uh. Great. Uh, January 24th, a week later, Bethesda lays out um, a more hardcore PvP-oriented survival mode to be implemented in a later patch. This would allow players to attack one another with abandon. Um, in the base game, to actually deal serious damage to another player, you would have to return fire after they shoot you. Like, players who are not engaged in active combat with others would be um, dealt chip damage at worst, right? So it's going to be more hardcore, there's going to be stricter survival conditions and systems, it's going to be PvP and, like, kind of raid-friendly, um, and that those survival uh, mode games would be hosted on separate servers, but according to Bethesda, you could take the same character from one game mode to the other. You would also, however, carry any items or consequences that befell your actions from one to the other, right? So, like, if you got killed in a survival server and people stole all of your stuff, if you moved back to the general server, you would still um, be down those objects. Um, okay, January 29th, our fifth major patch in the two months since the game's release. <laughs> Increases um, maximum character carry weight, but still doesn't further expand the stash, which has still been giving people trouble. Um, deals with some stability and bug fixes, of course, which some of which cause further issues. Uh, this patch was f around 500 megabytes on PC and around another 3.5 gigs on console because at this point, your poor, poor Xbox is a dedicated Fallout 76 machine. Okay. Throughout January, yeah, yeah, uh, players report penalties and bans for falling victim to glitches and the loyal pan fan base becomes increasingly kind of scared of Bethesda moderation. <laughs> February 14th, though, we're almost to the end of the period that this, ex not exactly expose, this analysis covers. There's a lot of Fallout 76 that we just don't have the time to get around to. February. Major Patch 6 was released, with no major issues immediately detected. It finally increased the stash limit again by another 200 slots. Um, and, uh... Bethesda also announced the beginning of a Wild Appalachia PvE initiative. Now get this. In early 2019, Bethesda released something incredible. Something that every modern MMO has to have, and that never ever ends up an embarrassing relic of an overly ambitious development plan. What did they release, friends? Crap. Well, yes, but Patch. they've been doing that for months. A roadmap! Oh. A content roadmap. And here's what I have marked down under my the fucking roadmap section in my journal. So, throughout 2019, Bethesda planned for the following. In the early months of the year, again, beginning in, uh, I want to say March? Yeah, mid-March. They would begin the Wild Appalachia Initiative, which would see periodic content releases week by week over a couple of months. This would include additional quest lines, new means of crafting, 
Um, certain quality of life upgrades like camera mode um, for taking beautiful screenshots of that game with ten times the detail of Fallout 4. Um, a, a, a horror-themed quest line that incorporates more elements of uh, the supernatural and like classical American cryptids that kind of served as some of the narrative backdrop of Fallout 76. Uh, and player-to-player vending, among other things. Uh, I think the survival mode would also launch during that time. Uh, so, they had that. Um, they announced for summer of 2019 a kind of vague nuclear winter expansion, and they teased a content pack called Wastelanders to be released in fall of 2019. Now, on... February 6th, or no, just in February 2019, a Bethesda community manager confirms that Major Patch 7 is going to address several considerable issues, including instantly healing enemies, teammates vanishing into thin air, and legendary creatures and bosses who drop no loot. But teammates teammates vanishing into thin air, I can just imagine another conversation like, John, John, where are you? Oh, oh shit, I'm, I'm in the dev room again. <laughs> I'm scared, Band. help. Band. So on March 13th, 2019, the Wild Appalachia Initiative goes live with a new Nuka Shine brewing quest line, crafting, and so on and so on. April 4th, 2019 sees Major Patch 8 go live, implementing, uh, finally, pay-to-win non-cosmetic microtransactions. Going back on a promise that Bethesda made to its players through mouthpieces from the earliest days of, like, public development. Now, a lot of people pointed out the initial microtransactions were not that bad. And relatively speaking, by the standards of pay-to-win, they were not. They were these little repair kits you could buy that -hmm. would allow you to just uh, top up the durability of your items... Uh, much more easily without finding crafting benches and this, that, and the third thing, right? Right, It smooths the gameplay loop. It eliminates an element of a grind for the players. It's a minor way in which they're given an advantage over other players, but it is a way nonetheless. And one Mm -hmm. that Bethesda, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, has failed to really apologize for or um, back away from in the years since, with Fallout 76 incorporating more and more non-cosmetic microtransactions all the time. Yep. So this, again, shows that, and nobody from Bethesda, as far as I'm aware, has come out and said, hey, you know, we really didn't want to integrate this. We didn't plan to integrate these kind of microtransactions. But financially, the game or its development were just significantly more costly than we thought. And so Mm -hmm. we have to find some ways of earning that revenue or something like that. Some kind of explanation, right? They were just like, oh, well, it's it's not pay to win. Not at all. Um, You can do the same things you can uh, with one of these repair kits. At a crafting bench or something like that. Yeah. So it's not letting you do something other players can't. It's just letting you do something far more easily than other players can. You know, it's basically an iteration of the old you can earn our premium currency in-game excuse. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. What else do we have? That's the end of my, like, concrete timeline. But a lot more happened in the world of Fallout 76 as the game continued to be fraught by admittedly fewer and fewer, but still very considerable technical issues as um, 
content patches and content packs like Nuclear Winter and especially Wastelanders got pushed further and further out. Correct me if I'm wrong, Wastelanders came out last year, right? I think so. Not uh, honestly, I have no idea. Not mid 2019. Yeah, that was the last year. Yeah, that was the uh, much anticipated content pack that reintroduced NPCs to the world, and you can bet your ass Bethesda marketed that as if it was a massive triumphant moment on their part, mm-hmm. as if they had innovated and expanded this game by just giving people what was already there to begin with. Um, let's see, people discovered Fallout 76 was basically just Fallout 4's source code broken to hell and back in order to accommodate uh, MMO systems it couldn't really work all that well with, which led to hackers doing amusing things like spawning uh, the Brotherhood of Steel's massive airship, the Pridwin, from the fourth game in the skies over Appalachia and driving it around for a few hours. Hours. Um, um, there, was, there was also the thing where you could run super fast if you were, I believe, looking at the ground. Yep, yep, yep. Um... Content was, as I said, consistently delayed. Tech consistently maligned. Fallout 76 was trying desperately to hold on to a hemorrhaging player base, and I think just now it's got a small but stable community, right? I think. Yeah. Sort of. It's not doing ESO numbers. Yeah. It's not doing, like, probably secret world numbers, but it is doing some numbers. It's doing some numbers, yeah. Now, before we conclude and kind of reflect, there's two more really important controversies I want to point out to you guys. They both kind of emphasize how poorly Bethesda's management handled both the optics and the substance of Fallout 76 and its marketing, okay? Mm -hmm. For the first one, we've got to look at yet another very expensive piece of Fallout 76 tie-in merchandise, the Nuka Dark Rum. Uh... You guys remember this. No. So Bethesda partnered with a brewery to produce a real-life version of the in-game drink Nuka Dark Rum, produced by the Nuka-Cola company. So, in-game, Nuka Dark Rum comes in this beautiful, like, sleek uh, glass bottle with certain, like, embellishments. It looks really cool, right? Mm -hmm. And Bethesda offered players, um, like, their own... Pretty costly, but it was intended largely as, like, a, a novelty gift, right? their own nice bottle of ice-cold Nuka Dark Rum ordered directly from this brewery, if they would reach out to them. Um, Like, you you had to pay for it and all that, of course, and it was, again, quite costly. But you could get your own bottle of Nuka Dark Rum in that gorgeous glass bottle from the game. Except you couldn't. See, the Nuka Dark Rum, by all accounts, was actually pretty good. Like, Mm -hmm. as far as flavor and quality of the beverage went, the, the folks at the brewery knew what they were doing. Just like the author of the Fallout cookbook knows what she's doing. Um, The people Bethesda partners with seem to be making higher quality products than Bethesda itself does. Yeah. But a lot of people were upset because they wanted the the bottle itself as like a a mantle decoration, right? You know, hey, look at this this tchotchke I picked up. Um, Mm. This Fallout uh, promotional merchandise. And as it happened... It did not ship in the glass bottle. Oh, Rather, man. it shipped in plastic? a... No? Get oh, this! Yes, plastic. There was a cheap, uncolored, effectively, like dark gray plastic shell in the shape of the Nuka Dark Rum bottle 
Oh, come on. Encasing an undecorated plain glass bottle. <sighs> so, no, no. People did research. You want to know what's fucking amazing about this? It cost but, more than the actual glass bottle. It could have been... Much more! Tough. If... The plastic shell itself. I'm not even talking about the cheapo bottle they shipped inside of the shell. The plastic shell itself cost way more than the glass bottle to produce. Like, almost twice as much. So, the, the folks at Bethesda couldn't say they were cutting costs. They couldn't say, oh, there was, a, there was a glass shortage. Because there was a glass bottle inside the shell. It just wasn't the Nuka Dark Rum bottle. They, they seemingly went out of their way to subvert people's expectations and disappoint them. Amazing. With absolutely no economic or practical I initiative. It, it, it is amazing. Now, mm -hmm. the second... They had a brain shortage. Ah, of course. <laughs> um, then we have to talk about Fallout first. Oh, God. So, in October of 2019... As the world slowly burned around them, the folks in charge of Fallout 76 decided, ah, I know what this game needs. It needs a paid subscription plan that players can sign up for in order to gain certain additional features and bonuses in-game. It's not pay to win, though. It's not pay to win. So they introduce Fallout First, a subscription service that gives you, among other things, Unique items, certain increased capacities in your in-game camp, and even the ability to play on private servers. Except not really, because those servers weren't private at launch, even though Bethesda marketed them as such, and they had to work to create actual private servers for players. And how much does a Fallout first subscription cost, you may ask? How much would you pay for a subscription to a game you've already paid 60-plus dollars for? I... Nothing. Well, I mean, I do pay for World of Warcraft, so... How much is WoW a year, Potato? 15, oh, a year, I don't know. If it's 15 bucks a month. Okay. It's not, so like, terrible. For a year of Fallout first, you drop a cool $100. Nice. To play in Bethesda's buggy, empty, unpleasant, poop-riddled sandbox. Is it like you can only buy a year and not, like, monthly or... No, you, you can buy it monthly, but a year is, I want, I want to say, far and away the most uh, efficient or cost-effective uh, value you can get. Quote-unquote value. So, yeah, Fallout First Spawn was released, and people hated it. I want to say it started something of like a, a faux class war in-game. People who had Fallout First ganging up and like antagonizing those who didn't, and vice versa. So there was like a Raiders Country Club set up in game, more or less. Great. I don't get it. I don't get how this game has been so extensively mismanaged, but that is everything that I dredged up with the time I had. Keep in mind, most of this timeline, ladies and gentlemen, does not even go to a year beyond the game's release, and it's been out for well over two. Fallout 76, to be fair, has seen fewer and fewer controversies and serious problems as the years have gone on, though I would attribute at least part of that to a greatly diminished public interest in the trash fire after everybody had sufficiently scoped it out in the months following its release. What do you guys think about all of this? I still think is it's not as bad of a clusterfuck as Cyberpunk, 
but it's a big oh. book. Here's the thing, though. If you like, think back to the timeline, just a few months I covered, something was breaking every single week, and unlike CDPR, they were actually trying to fix it. Yeah. Now, it's nowhere near as disappointing, because a lot of people kind of saw the writing on the wall with Fallout 76, but I would argue 76 is the biggest AAA des de developmental disaster that actually made it to market this generation. Yeah, I would agree. Did you guys learn anything or hear anything that surprised you or that you found particularly entertaining? The way that the deal dealt with the um, tote bag situation. <laughs> yes. Was just brilliant. Yeah, I had no idea about like the wrong bottles that they fucked up. And like, it's almost as if, you know, well, we did this with the bags. Maybe we should do things better. No, just, you know, plastic shell, regular bottle, just. Ship him out, it'll be fine. No, like, Fallout 76's business and developmental decisions are what happens when, like, one of Bethesda's uh, directors or, like, some high-up exec comes tearing into the conference room one day, like, G guys, um, okay, so don't, don't, don't be alarmed, don't, I, I know I just got back from, from Italy, no big deal, but we need to, like, make a lot of money disappear really quickly. Like, <laughs> Like, I, I have several million dollars. I should not. We've got to do something about this. <laughs> um, but that, as far as I, I can delve in two, nearly two hours of rambling, is the story of Fallout 76 and the most tumultuous months of its development. What, what are your guys' takeaways? Like, give me, give me your thoughts. I am really happy that I'm not a fan of Fallout games because mm -hmm. if I was being promised an MMO experience and I was uh, given that, I would be very, very upset. Right. I mean, I really didn't even try to buy the game or anything because I expected it to be a dumpster fire, not this big of a dumpster fire, so, you know. Hey, it can always be worse, I guess. <laughs> oh, don't don't say that. <laughs> They'll take it as a challenge. Yeah. Give me one second to take a drink and I'll offer... I think the closest thing to a moral I can regarding Fallout and, like, our little series on Bethesda in general. <laughs> okay, sorry. So... One of the things that stands out to me about Bethesda as both a developer and a publisher and the way they market themselves to the consumers today mm -hmm. is that they lean very, very heavily on the language and imagery of community and of nostalgia. If you recall, their Dumpster Fire 2019 E3 presentation featuring Yeah Guy, um, was littered with these honestly rather touching vignettes of players from all backgrounds and of all skill levels and ages and what have you. It was really quite wonderful. Talking about how engagement with Bethesda games and most importantly, the community that had grown to surround them meant to them, how, how it impacted them. And I'm not going to take away from that because that's really something special. 
Having media, having things meant for consumption and enjoyment not only affect you, but facilitate positive developmental engagement with other people who feel just as positively towards those things as you do. That's beautiful. But the thing about Bethesda, the company, the developer, the publisher, is, and and I want to emphasize this, when I think about all of the great stories people tell about, like, experiences in Skyrim or all of the fond memories they have of Oblivion or Fallout or what have you, so little of it actually has anything to do with the work Bethesda put in. So much of, certainly from Skyrim on, the warm, like, life-defining memories people might have of products Bethesda was affiliated with have to do with the fan communities that sprung up around them and the company's general amicability towards modders and people who want to create their own content based off of Bethesda's products. Uh, As long as it's not for profit, unless you're selling it through their creation club, of course. Mm. So you have one of the first really major modern development houses that took to the modding scene that took to fan creators with a great deal of warmth and encouraged them and said, you're a part of this community, you're a part of this brand. But my argument, my big argument for this episode, friends, and I I do want to speak more seriously than I otherwise might, is it's a lot of fan creators, people writing fiction, people writing mods, people creating unique visual and auditory artwork inspired by the Elder Scrolls, inspired by Fallout, who've made the contemporary Bethesda community and reputation what it is, not the company that's actually making the games. They rely on and they lean on you. If you love these games and you're passionate about them and you've been able to create fond memories with friends and family and partners bonding over or around them, then that sense of what you did, of what you created, and the context and meaning that you infused into those activities, that's what Bethesda's leaning on and trying to sell you in the guise of shoddy products like Elder Scrolls Blades, like Fallout 76. They're trying to take credit for something more than what they're capable of doing. They're trying to take credit, in part, for all of the wonderful things that you've done with like-minded people in and around your community. Yes, there was a time when it was really cool to see a developer so engaged with uh, their community and so genuinely fond of so many of the things they produced. But I would argue right now, with the state of the company, the community, a wonderful, creative, and based on what I've seen, eminently positive and enthusiastic community of creators and consumers doesn't need Bethesda. Really doesn't. Bethesda needs you. Because without the ability of bottling your your own accomplishments, your own nostalgia for a fandom that you got heavily invested in and you helped define back to you, these guys don't have much to offer right now. And yep. they're not terribly interested in doing so. Again, one of the most beautiful things I've learned during my research is the amount of time and effort so many wonderful people the world over 
put into creating their own mod, creating their own set of artwork or prints, creating their own albums inspired by like the, the visuals of Skyrim or what have you, creating and iterating upon these worlds in wonderful ways. Young, aspirant creators, many of them who many of whom do it because, well, yes, obviously they want a career in these fields, but they they love the craft. They love creating and they love sharing it with people, especially people who appreciate the same things, the same inspirations that they do. That is absolutely beautiful. And so this is what I encourage you to do, dear friends. Anybody out there listening. If you enjoy the games, that's totally fine. I mean, I'm as a streamer, I'm more or less obligated to check out whatever crap Bethesda pushes out. But don't give them credit that should belong to the community. It should belong to the fans who defined their brand and make it what it is today. All uh, Ascribe to it all of its positive um, associations. Don't deny them their recognition. Don't deny them the appreciation, the respect, and the resources and support that they really deserve. Because if I have to choose between giving money to Todd Howard and Pete Hines and the folks over at Bethesda who are okay with selling me something that's broken, telling me it's not really broken, and then charging me way more for it than they told me they would, or giving money to somebody like Victoria Rosenthal, who loves video games and cuisine, and is trying to combine her passions in a kind of really fun, lighthearted way that could also be used to great effect in your home, I know who my money's going to. Yep. People make fandoms people make entertainment in the world around them so much more than the base products themselves are and i think nowhere in our space right now is that more apparent than with the case of bethesda softworks and bethesda game studios let's not take credit that belongs to people who really need it who really need that support and that encouragement and that kindness and give it to people who don't and aren't interested in having it Bethesda has one of the greatest, like, modern AAA fan bases out there, I think. And that fan base is so much greater than the studio itself. Support fan creators, support small creators, people working to share your passion with you in new and interesting ways, and find ways to show people working in this space. If you enjoy their work, or if you just appreciate their drive, their their hustle, you know? Mm-hmm. Um especially right now as the world's slowly starting, slowly, slowly to go back to normal. Show these people that you care and that you appreciate what they do, just as I appreciate what all of you do by tuning into our podcast and listening to, well, for the past two hours at least, listening to me ramble. I Smooth. I appreciate you all. <laughs> um, final thoughts, guys? Uh, Bethesda can go fuck itself, honestly. It definitely is not deserving uh, the fame it has, the money it has, and the fandom it has. Yeah, pretty much what she said. (laughs) And my final word is just this, once again, but with a really, really fine point on it. Because in those vignettes and in um, a lot of fan testimonials, I've seen people talk about how Bethesda's games helped them through really hard times helped them, you know, kind of cope with emergent identity or personal issues, right? And I, th- I think that's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful when media can help you through this. But to, to anyone to whom that would apply, anybody who feels that way, 
I want you to not undersell yourself. Bethesda or their games might have been a wonderful source of contentment, but they they didn't get you through that. You did. Your strength, your perseverance, your tenacity, your character are what saw you through the doldrums which befell you or befell any of us in life. And so it's not so much a game somebody else made that might have helped you through that. It's what you did with it. It's what it meant to you. So don't don't say Bethesda helped me. You helped yourself using their stuff. And everybody, whether you're a fan of like the company we're discussing, whether you're not, I, I just feel it's important to point this out to everybody as often as I can. You all have tremendous worth and diffuse that through the world around you and the people you interact with every day. So never, ever think that your passion projects, the things that you're really geeking out over your little hobbies can't have a tremendous impact on the world because they can. And in most cases they do in maybe more subtle ways every day. So love yourselves and love each other, maybe a little bit more than you love Bethesda and certainly more than Bethesda loves your money until next time. Thank you all so much for joining us uh, for a serious deep dive into fallout 76's development. Um, my name is Brady, or the Overanalyst, on Twitch and associated platforms, joined as always by my dear friends Martina, or Seth the Overwitch. Goodbye. And Mate, or Comrade Potato. Bye-bye. Wishing you a wonderful rest of your day, and reminding you to check out and subscribe to our YouTube channel at The Overanalysts for a full and complete backlog of episodes, as well as stream VODs from all three of us, and a couple interesting independent projects that we're producing. Thank you so much, and have a wonderful rest of your day. Goodbye.